Chapter 10, Part 3 of Pictures from Italy by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. At the head of the collections in the palaces of Rome, the Vatican, of course, with its treasures of art, its enormous galleries and staircases, and suites upon suites of immense chambers, ranks highest and stands foremost. Many most noble statues and wonderful pictures are there, nor is it heresy to say that there is a considerable amount of rubbish there too. When any old piece of sculpture dug out of the ground finds a place in a gallery because it is old, and without any reference to its intrinsic merits, and finds admirers by the hundred because it is there, and for no other reason on earth, there will be no lack of objects very indifferent in the plain eyesight of any one who employs so vulgar a property, when he may wear the spectacles of Kant for less than nothing, and establish himself as a man of taste for the mere trouble of putting them on. I unreservedly confess for myself that I cannot leave my natural perception of what is natural and true at a palace door in Italy or elsewhere, as I should leave my shoes if I were travelling in the East. I cannot forget that there are certain expressions of face natural to certain passions, and as unchangeable in their nature as the gait of a lion or the flight of an eagle. I cannot dismiss from my certain knowledge such commonplace facts as the ordinary proportion of men's arms and legs and heads, and when I meet with performances that do violence to these experiences and recollections, no matter where they may be, I cannot honestly admire them and think it best to say so, in spite of high critical advice, that we should sometimes feign an admiration, though we have it not. Therefore I freely acknowledge that when I see a jolly young waterman representing a cherubim, or a Barclay and Perkins drayman depicted as an evangelist, I see nothing to commend or admire in the performance, however great its reputed painter. Neither am I partial to libelous angels who play on fiddles and bassoons for the edification of sprawling monks apparently in liquor, nor to those Monsieur Tonsons of galleries, St. Francis and St. Sebastian, both of whom, I submit, should have very uncommon and rare merits as works of art to justify their compound multiplication by Italian painters. It seems to me, too, that the indiscriminate and determined raptures in which some critics indulge is incompatible with the true appreciation of the really great and transcendent works. I cannot imagine, for example, how the resolute champion of undeserving pictures can soar to the amazing beauty of Titian's great picture of the Assumption of the Virgin at Venice, or how the man who is truly affected by the sublimity of that exquisite production or who is truly sensible of the beauty of Tintoretto's great picture of the assembly of the blessed in the same place, can discern in Michelangelo's last judgment in the Sistine Chapel any general idea or one pervading thought in harmony with the stupendous subject. He who will contemplate Raphael's masterpiece, The Transfiguration, and will go away into another chamber of that same Vatican and contemplate another design of Raphael, representing in incredible caricature the miraculous stopping of a great fire by Leo the Fourth, and who will say that he admires them both as works of extraordinary genius, must, as I think, be wanting in his powers of perception in one of the two instances, and probably in the high and lofty one. 
It is easy to suggest a doubt, but I have a great doubt whether sometimes the rules of art are not too strictly observed, and whether it is quite well or agreeable that we should know beforehand where this figure will be turning round, and where that figure will be lying down, and where there will be drapery in folds, and so forth. When I observe heads inferior to the subject in pictures of merit in Italian galleries, I do not attach that reproach to the painter, for I have a suspicion that these great men, who were of necessity very much in the hands of monks and priests, painted monks and priests a great deal too often. I frequently see in pictures of real power heads quite below the story in the painter, and I invariably observe that those heads are of the convent stamp, and have their counterparts among the convent inmates of this hour. So I have settled with myself that in such cases the lameness was not with the painter, but with the vanity and ignorance of certain of his employers, who would be apostles, on canvas at all events. The exquisite grace and beauty of Canova's statues, the wonderful gravity and repose of many of the ancient works in sculpture, both in the capital and the Vatican, and the strength and fire of many others, are in their different ways beyond all reach of words. They are especially impressive and delightful after the works of Bernini and his disciples, in which the churches of Rome, from St. Peter's downward, abound, and which are, I verily believe, the most detestable class of productions in the wide world. I would infinitely rather, as mere works of art, look upon the three deities of the past, the present, and the future in the Chinese collection, than upon the best of these breezy maniacs, whose every fold of drapery is blown inside out, whose smallest vein or artery is as big as an ordinary forefinger, whose hair is like a nest of lively snakes, and whose attitudes put all other extravagance to shame, insomuch that I do honestly believe there can be no place in the world where such intolerable abortions, begotten of the sculptor's chisel, are to be found in such profusion as in Rome. There is a fine collection of Egyptian antiquities in the Vatican, and the ceilings of the rooms in which they are arranged are painted to represent a starlight sky in the desert. It may seem an odd idea, but it is very effective. The grim half-human monsters from the temples look more grim and monstrous underneath the deep dark blue. It sheds a strange, uncertain, gloomy air on everything, a mystery adapted to the objects, and you leave them as you find them, shrouded in a solemn night. In the private palaces, pictures are seen to the best advantage. There are seldom so many in one place that the attention need become distracted or the eye confused. You see them very leisurely, and are rarely interrupted by a crowd of people. There are portraits innumerable by Titian and Rembrandt and Van Dyck, heads by Guido and Domenichino and Carlo Dolci, various subjects by Correggio and Murillo and Raphael and Salvatore Rosa and Spagnoletto, many of which it will be difficult indeed to praise too highly, or to praise enough, such is their tenderness and grace, their noble elevation, purity and beauty. The portrait of Beatrice di Cenci in the Palazzo Berberini is a picture almost impossible to be forgotten. Through the transcendent sweetness and beauty of the face, there is something shining out that haunts me. I see it now as I see this paper or my pen. 
the head is loosely draped in white, the light hair falling down below the linen folds. She has turned suddenly towards you, and there is an expression in the eyes, although they are very tender and gentle, as if the wildness of a momentary terror or distraction had been struggled with and overcome that instant, and nothing but a celestial hope and a beautiful sorrow and a desolate earthly helplessness remained. Some stories say that Guido painted it the night before her execution, some other stories that he painted it from memory after having seen her on her way to the scaffold. I am willing to believe that as you see her on his canvas, so she turned towards him in the crowd from the first sight of the axe, and stamped upon his mind a look which he has stamped on mine, as though I had stood beside him in the concourse. The guilty palace of the Cenci, blighting a whole quarter of the town, as it stands withering away by grains, had that face to my fancy in its dismal porch, and in its black blind windows, and flitting up and down its dreary stairs, and growing out of the darkness of the ghostly galleries. The history is written in the painting, written in the dying girl's face by nature's own hand, and oh how in that one touch she puts to flight, instead of making kin, the puny world that claimed to be related to her in right of poor conventional forgeries. I saw in the Palazzo Spada the statue of Pompey, the statue at whose base Caesar fell, a stern, tremendous figure. I imagined one of greater finish, of the last refinement, full of delicate touches, losing its distinctness in the giddy eyes of one whose blood was ebbing before it, and settling into some such rigid majesty as this, as death came creeping over the upturned face. The excursions in the neighbourhood of Rome are charming, and would be full of interest were it only for the changing views they afford of the wild Campania, but every inch of ground in every direction is rich in associations and in natural beauties. There is Albano with its lovely lake and wooded shore, and with its wine that certainly has not improved since the days of Horace, and in these time hardly justifies his panegyric. There is squalid Tivoli with the river Anio diverted from its course and plunging down headlong some eighty feet in search of it. With its picturesque temple of the Sibyl, perched high on a crag, its minor waterfalls glancing and sparkling in the sun, and one good cavern yawning darkly where the river takes a fearful plunge and shoots on low down under the beetling rocks. There too is the Villa d'Este, deserted and decaying among groves of melancholy pine and cypress trees, where it seems to lie in state. Then there is the Frascati, and on the steep above it the ruins of Tusculum, where Cicero lived and wrote, and adorned his favourite house, some fragments of it may yet be seen there, and where Cato was born. We saw its ruined amphitheatre on a grey dull day, when a shrill March wind was blowing, and when the scattered stones of the old city lay strewn about the lonely eminence as desolate and dead as the ashes of a long-extinguished fire. One day we walked out, a little party of three, to Albano, fourteen miles distant, possessed by a great desire to go there by the ancient Appian Way, long since ruined and overgrown. We started at half-past seven in the morning, and within an hour or so were out upon the open campagna. 
For twelve miles we went climbing on, over an unbroken succession of mounds and heaps and hills of ruin. Tombs and temples, overthrown and prostrate, small fragments of columns, friezes, pediments, great blocks of granite and marble, mouldering arches, grass-grown and decayed, ruin enough to build a spacious city from, lay strewn about us. Sometimes loose walls, built up from these fragments by the shepherds, came across our path. Sometimes a ditch between two mounds of broken stones obstructed our progress. Sometimes the fragments themselves, rolling from beneath our feet, made it a toilsome matter to advance, but it was always ruin. Now we tracked a piece of the old road above the ground, now traced it underneath a grassy covering, as if that were its grave, but all the way was ruin. In the distance ruined aqueducts went stalking on their giant course along the plain, and every breath of wind that swept towards us stirred early flowers and grasses, springing up spontaneously on miles of ruin. The unseen larks above us, who alone disturbed the awful silence, had their nests in ruin, and the fierce herdsmen clad in sheepskins, who now and then scowled out upon us from their sleeping nooks, were housed in ruin. The aspect of the desolate Campagna in one direction, where it was most level, reminded me of an American prairie. But what is the solitude of a region where men have never dwelt to that of a desert, where a mighty race have left their footprints in the earth from which they have vanished, where the resting places of their dead have fallen like their dead, and the broken hourglass of time is but a heap of idle dust? Returning by the road at sunset, and looking from the distance on the course we had taken in the morning, I almost feel, as I had felt when I first saw it at that hour, as if the sun would never rise again, but looked its last that night upon a ruined world. To come again on Rome by moonlight after such an expedition is a fitting close to such a day. The narrow streets, devoid of footways and choked in every obscure corner by heaps of dunghill rubbish, contrast so strongly in their cramped dimensions and their filth and darkness with the broad square before some haughty church, in the centre of which a hieroglyphic-covered obelisk, brought from Egypt in the days of the emperors, looks strangely on the foreign scene about it or perhaps an ancient pillar, with its honoured statue overthrown, supports a Christian saint, Marcus Aurelius giving place to Paul, and Trajan to St. Peter. Then there are the ponderous buildings reared from the spoliation of the Colosseum, shutting out the moon like mountains, while here and there are broken arches and rent walls, through which it gushes freely, as the life comes pouring from a wound. The little town of miserable houses, walled and shut in by barred gates, is the quarter where the Jews are locked up nightly, when the clock strikes eight, a miserable place, densely populated and reeking with bad odours, but where the people are industrious and money-getting. In the daytime, as you make your way along the narrow streets, you see them all at work, upon the pavement oftener than in their dark and frowsy shops, furbishing old clothes and driving bargains. Crossing from these patches of thick darkness out into the moon once more, the fountain of Trevi, welling from a hundred jets and rolling over mimic rocks, is silvery to the eye and ear. 
in the narrow little throat of street beyond a booth dressed out with flaring lamps and boughs of trees attracts a group of sulky romans round its smoky coppers of hot broth and cauliflower stew its trays of fried fish and its flasks of wine as you rattle round the sharply twisting corner a lumbering sound is heard the coachman stops abruptly and uncovers as a van comes slowly by preceded by a man who bears a large cross by a torch-bearer and a priest the latter chaunting as he goes it is the dead cart with the bodies of the poor on their way to burial in the sacred field outside the walls where they will be thrown into the pit that will be covered with a stone to-night and sealed up for a year but whether in this ride you pass by obelisks or columns ancient temples theatres houses porticoes or forums it is strange to see how every fragment whenever it is possible has been blended into some modern structure and made to serve some modern purpose a wall a dwelling-place a granary a stable some use for which it never was designed and associated with which it cannot otherwise than lamely assort it is stranger still to see how many ruins of the old mythology how many fragments of obsolete legend and observance have been incorporated into the worship of christian altars here and how in numberless respects the false faith and the true are fused into a monstrous union from one part of the city looking out beyond the walls a squat and stunted pyramid the burial place of caius Cestius, makes an opaque triangle in the moonlight but to an english traveller it serves to mark the grave of shelley too whose ashes lie beneath a little garden near it nearer still almost within its shadow lie the bones of keats whose name is written water that shines brightly in the landscape of a calm italian night the holy week in rome is supposed to offer great attractions to all visitors but saving for the sights of easter sunday i would counsel those who go to rome for its own interest to avoid it at that time the ceremonies in general are of the most tedious and wearisome kind the heat and crowd at every one of them painfully oppressive the noise hubbub and confusion quite distracting we abandoned the pursuit of these shows very early in the proceedings and betook ourselves to the ruins again but we plunged into the crowd for a share of the best of the sights and what we saw i will describe to you at the sistine chapel on the wednesday we saw very little for by the time we reached it though we were early the besieging crowd had filled it to the door and overflowed into the adjoining hall where they were struggling and squeezing and mutually expostulating and making great rushes every time a lady was brought out faint as if at least fifty people could be accommodated in her vacant standing-room hanging in the doorway of the chapel was a heavy curtain and this curtain some twenty people nearest to it in their anxiety to hear the chaunting of the miserere were continually plucking at in opposition to each other that it might not fall down and stifle the sound of the voices the consequence was that it occasioned the most extraordinary confusion and seemed to wind itself about the unwary like a serpent now a lady was wrapped up in it and couldn't be unwound now the voice of a stifling gentleman was heard inside it beseeching to be let out 
now two muffled arms no man could say of which sex struggled in it as in a sack now it was carried by a rush bodily overhead into the chapel like an awning now it came out the other way and blinded one of the pope's swiss guard who had arrived that moment to set things to rights being seated at a little distance among two or three of the pope's gentlemen who were very weary and counting the minutes as perhaps his holiness was too we had better opportunities of observing this eccentric entertainment than of hearing the miserere sometimes there was a swell of mournful voices that sounded very pathetic and sad and died away into a low strain again but that was all we heard at another time there was the exhibition of relics in st peter's which took place at between six and seven o'clock in the evening and was striking from the cathedral being dark and gloomy and having a great many people in it the place into which the relics were brought one by one by a party of three priests was a high balcony near the chief altar this was the only lighted part of the church there were always a hundred and twelve lamps burning near the altar and there were two tall tapers besides near the black statue of st peter but these were nothing in such an immense edifice the gloom and the general upturning of faces to the balcony and the prostration of true believers on the pavement as shining objects like pictures or looking-glasses were brought out and shown had something effective in it despite the very preposterous manner in which they were held up for the general edification and the great elevation at which they were displayed which one would think rather calculated to diminish the comfort derivable from a full conviction of their being genuine on the thursday we went to see the pope convey the sacrament from the sistine chapel to deposit in the capella paulina another chapel in the vatican a ceremony emblematical of the entombment of the saviour before his resurrection we waited in a great gallery with a great crowd of people three-fourths of them english for an hour or so while they were chaunting the miserere in the sistine chapel again both chapels opened out of the gallery and the general attention was concentrated on the occasional opening and shutting of the door of the one for which the pope was ultimately bound none of these openings disclosed anything more tremendous than a man on a ladder lighting a great quantity of candles but at each and every opening there was a terrific rush made at this ladder and this man something like i should think a charge of the heavy british cavalry at waterloo the man was never brought down however nor the ladder for it performed the strangest antics in the world among the crowd where it was carried by the man when the candles were all lighted and finally it was stuck up against the gallery wall in a very disorderly manner just before the opening of the other chapel and the commencement of a new chaunt announced the approach of his holiness at this crisis the soldiers of the guard who had been poking the crowd into all sorts of shapes formed down the gallery and the procession came up between the two lines they made there were a few choristers and then a great many priests walking two and two and carrying the good-looking priests at least their lighted tapers so as to throw the light with a good effect upon their faces for the room was darkened those who were not handsome or who had not long beards carried their tapers anyhow and abandoned themselves to spiritual contemplation meanwhile the chaunting was very monotonous and dreary the procession passed on slowly into the chapel 
and the drone of voices went on and came on with it until the pope himself appeared walking under a white satin canopy and bearing the covered sacrament in both hands cardinals and canons clustered round him making a brilliant show the soldiers of the guard knelt down as he passed all the bystanders bowed and so he passed on into the chapel the white satin canopy being removed from over him at the door and a white satin parasol hoisted over his poor old head in place of it a few more couples brought up the rear and passed into the chapel also then the chapel door was shut and it was all over and everybody hurried off headlong as for life or death to see something else and say it wasn't worth the trouble i think the most popular and most crowded sight excepting those of easter sunday and monday which are open to all classes of people was the pope washing the feet of thirteen men representing the twelve apostles and judas iscariot the place in which this pious office is performed is one of the chapels of st peter's which is gaily decorated for the occasion the thirteen sitting all of a row on a very high bench and looking particularly uncomfortable with the eyes of heaven knows how many english french americans swiss germans russians swedes norwegians and other foreigners nailed to their faces all the time they are robed in white and on their heads they wear a stiff white cap like a large english porter pot without a handle each carries in his hand a nosegay of the size of a fine cauliflower and two of them on this occasion wore spectacles which remembering the characters they sustained i thought a droll appendage to the costume there was a great eye to character st john was represented by a good-looking young man st peter by a grave-looking old gentleman with a flowing brown beard and judas iscariot by such an enormous hypocrite i could not make out though whether the expression of his face was real or assumed that if he had acted the part to the death and had gone away and hanged himself he would have left nothing to be desired as the two large boxes appropriated to ladies at this sight were full to the throat and getting near was hopeless we posted off along with a great crowd to be in time at the table where the pope in person waits on these thirteen and after a prodigious struggle at the vatican staircase and several personal conflicts with the swiss guard the whole crowd swept into the room it was a long gallery hung with drapery of white and red with another great box for ladies who were obliged to dress in black at these ceremonies and to wear black veils a royal box for the king of naples and his party and the table itself which set out like a ball supper and ornamented with golden figures of the real apostles was arranged on an elevated platform on one side of the gallery the counterfeit apostles knives and forks were laid out on that side of the table which was nearest to the wall so that they might be stared at again without let or hindrance the body of the room was full of male strangers the crowd immense the heat very great and the pressure sometimes frightful it was at its height when the stream came pouring in from the feet washing and then there were such shrieks and outcries that a party of piedmontese dragoons went to the rescue of the swiss guard and helped them to calm the tumult the ladies were particularly ferocious in their struggles for places 
one lady of my acquaintance was seized round the waist in the lady's box by a strong matron and hoisted out of her place and there was another lady in a back row in the same box who improved her position by sticking a large pin into the ladies before her the gentlemen about me were remarkably anxious to see what was on the table and one englishman seemed to have embarked the whole energy of his nature in the determination to discover whether there was any mustard by jupiter there's vinegar i heard him say to his friend after he had stood on tiptoe an immense time and had been crushed and beaten on all sides and there's oil i saw them distinctly in cruets can any gentleman in front there see mustard on the table sir will you oblige me do you see a mustard pot the apostles and judas appearing on the platform after much expectation were marshalled in line in front of the table with peter at the top and a good long stare was taken at them by the company while twelve of them took a long smell at their nosegays and judas moving his lips very obtrusively engaged in inward prayer then the pope clad in a scarlet robe and wearing on his head a skull-cap of white satin appeared in the midst of a crowd of cardinals and other dignitaries and took in his hand a little golden ewer from which he poured a little water over one of peter's hands while one attendant held a golden basin a second a fine cloth a third peter's nosegay which was taken from him during the operation then his holiness performed with considerable expedition on every man in the line judas i observed to be particularly overcome by his condescension and then the whole thirteen sat down to dinner grace said by the pope peter in the chair there was white wine and red wine and the dinner looked very good the courses appeared in portions one for each apostle and these being presented to the pope by cardinals upon their knees were by him handed to the thirteen the manner in which judas grew more white-livered over his victuals and languished with his head on one side as if he had no appetite defies all description peter was a good sound old man and went in as the saying is to win eating everything that was given him he got the best being first in the row and saying nothing to anybody the dishes appeared to be chiefly composed of fish and vegetables the pope held the thirteen to wine also and during the whole dinner somebody read something aloud out of a large book the bible i presume which nobody could hear and to which nobody paid the least attention the cardinals and other attendants smiled to each other from time to time as if the thing were a great farce and if they thought so there is little doubt they were perfectly right his holiness did what he had to do as a sensible man gets through a troublesome ceremony and seemed very glad when it was all over the pilgrim suppers where lords and ladies waited on the pilgrims in token of humility and dried their feet when they had been well washed by deputy were very attractive but of all the many spectacles of dangerous reliance on outward observances in themselves mere empty forms none struck me half so much as the scala santa or holy staircase which i saw several times but to the greatest advantage or disadvantage on good friday this holy staircase is composed of eight-and-twenty steps said to have belonged to pontius pilate's house and to be the identical stair on which our saviour trod in coming down from the judgment seat 
pilgrims ascend it only on their knees it is steep and at the summit is a chapel reported to be full of relics into which they peep through some iron bars and then come down again by one of two side staircases which are not sacred and may be walked on on good friday there were on a moderate computation a hundred people slowly shuffling up these stairs on their knees at one time while others who were going up or had come down and a few who had done both and were going up again for the second time stood loitering in the porch below where an old gentleman in a sort of watch-box rattled a tin canister with a slit in the top incessantly to remind them that he took the money the majority were country people male and female there were four or five jesuit priests however and some half-dozen well-dressed women a whole school of boys twenty at least were about halfway up evidently enjoying it very much they were all wedged together pretty closely but the rest of the company gave the boys as wide a berth as possible in consequence of their betraying some recklessness in the management of their boots i never in my life saw anything at once so ridiculous and so unpleasant as this sight ridiculous in the absurd incidents inseparable from it and unpleasant in its senseless and unmeaning degradation there are two steps to begin with and then a rather broad landing the more rigid climbers went along this landing on their knees as well as up the stairs and the figures they cut in their shuffling progress over the level surface no description can paint then to see them watch their opportunity from the porch and cut in where there was a place next the wall and to see one man with an umbrella brought on purpose for it was a fine day hoisting himself unlawfully from stair to stair and to observe a demure lady of fifty-five or so looking back every now and then to assure herself that her legs were properly disposed there were such odd differences in the speed of different people too some got on as if they were doing a match against time others stopped to say a prayer on every step this man touched every step with his forehead and kissed it that man scratched his head all the way the boys got on brilliantly and were up and down again before the old lady had accomplished her half-dozen stairs. But most of the penitents came down very sprightly and fresh, as having done a real good substantial deed which it would take a great deal of sin to counterbalance, and the old gentleman in the watch-box was down upon them with his canister while they were in this humour, I promise you. As if such a progress were not in its nature inevitably droll enough, there lay on the top of the stairs a wooden figure on a crucifix resting on a sort of great iron saucer so rickety and unsteady that whenever an enthusiastic person kissed the figure with more than usual devotion or threw a coin into the saucer with more than common readiness for it served in this respect as a second or supplementary canister it gave a great leap and rattle and nearly shook the attendant lamp out horribly frightening the people further down and throwing the guilty party into unspeakable embarrassment on easter sunday as well as on the preceding thursday the pope bestows his benediction on the people from the balcony in front of st peter's this easter sunday was a day so bright and blue so cloudless balmy wonderfully bright that all the previous bad weather vanished from the recollection in a moment 
I had seen the Thursday's benediction dropping damply on some hundreds of umbrellas, but there was not a sparkle then in all the hundred fountains of Rome, such fountains as they are, and on this Sunday morning they were running diamonds. The miles of miserable streets through which we drove, compelled to a certain course by the Pope's dragoons, the Roman police on such occasions, were so full of colour that nothing in them was capable of wearing a faded aspect. The common people came out in their gayest dresses, the richer people in their smartest vehicles, cardinals rattled to the church of the poor fishermen in, in their state carriages, shabby magnificence flaunted its threadbare liveries and tarnished cock hats in the sun, and every coach in Rome was put in requisition for the great piazza of St. Peter's. One hundred and fifty thousand people were there at least, yet there was ample room. How many carriages were there I don't know, yet there was room for them too and to spare. The great steps of the church were densely crowded. There were many of the contadini from Albano, who delight in red, in that part of the square, and the mingling of bright colours in the crowd was beautiful. Below the steps the troops were ranged. In the magnificent proportions of the place they looked like a bed of flowers. Sulky Romans, lively peasants from the neighbouring country, groups of pilgrims from distant parts of Italy, sightseeing foreigners of all nations, made a murmur in the clear air like so many insects, and high above them all, plashing and bubbling and making rainbow colours in the light, the two delicious fountains welled and tumbled bountifully. A kind of bright carpet was hung over the front of the balcony, and the sides of the great window were bedecked with crimson drapery. An awning was stretched to over the top to screen the old man from the hot rays of the sun. As noon approached, all eyes were turned up to this window. In due time the chair was seen approaching to the front, with the gigantic fans of peacock's feathers close behind. The doll within it, for the balcony is very high, then rose up and stretched out its tiny arms, while all the male spectators in the square uncovered, and some, but not by any means the greater part, kneeled down. The guns upon the ramparts of the castle of San Angelo proclaimed next moment that the benediction was given. Drums beat, trumpets sounded, arms clashed, and the great mass below, suddenly breaking into smaller heaps and scattering here and there in rills, was stirred like party-coloured sand. What a bright noon it was as we rode away. The Tiber was no longer yellow but blue. There was a blush on the old bridges that made them fresh and hale again. The Pantheon, with its majestic front, all seamed and furrowed like an old face, had summer light upon its battered walls. Every squalid and desolate hut in the Eternal City, bear witness every grim old palace to the filth and misery of the plebeian neighbour that elbows it, as certain as time has laid its grip on its patrician head, was fresh and new with some ray of the sun. The very prison in the crowded street, a whirl of carriages and people, had some stray sense of the day dropping through its chinks and crevices and dismal prisoners who could not wind their faces round the barricading of the blocked-up windows stretched out their hands and clinging to the rusty bars turned them towards the overflowing street as if it were a cheerful fire 
and could be shared in that way. But when the night came on without a cloud to dim the full moon, what a sight it was to see the great square full once more, and the whole church from the cross to the ground lighted with innumerable lanterns tracing out the architecture and winking and shining all round the colonnade of the piazza. And what a sense of exultation, joy, delight it was when the great bell struck half-past seven on the instant to behold one bright red mass of fire soar gallantly from the top of the cupola to the extremest summit of the cross, and the moment it leapt into its place became the signal of a bursting out of countless lights, as great and red and blazing as itself from every part of the gigantic church, so that every cornice, capital and smallest ornament of stone expressed itself in fire, and the black solid groundwork of the enormous dome seemed to grow transparent as an eggshell. A train of gunpowder, an electric chain, nothing could be fired more suddenly and swiftly than this second illumination, and when we had got away and gone upon a distant height and looked towards it two hours afterwards, there it still stood, shining and glittering in the calm night like a jewel, not a line of its proportions wanting, not an angle blunted, not an atom of its radiance lost. The next night, Easter Monday, there was a great display of fireworks from the castle of San Angelo. We hired a room in an opposite house, and made our way to our places in good time, through a dense mob of people choking up the square in front and all the avenues leading to it, and so loading the bridge by which the castle is approached that it seemed ready to sink into the rapid Tiber below. There are statues on this bridge, execrable works, and among them great vessels full of burning tow were placed, glaring strangely on the faces of the crowd and not less strangely on the stone counterfeits above them. The show began with a tremendous discharge of cannon, and then for twenty minutes or half an hour the whole castle was one incessant sheet of fire and labyrinth of blazing wheels of every colour, size and speed, while rockets streamed into the sky, not by ones or twos or scores, but hundreds at a time. The concluding burst, the girandola, was like the blowing up into the air of the whole massive castle, without smoke or dust. In half an hour afterwards, the immense concourse had dispersed. The moon was looking calmly down upon her wrinkled image in the river, and half a dozen men and boys, with bits of lighted candle in their hands, moving here and there, in search of anything worth having that might have been dropped in the press, had the whole scene to themselves. By way of contrast, we rode out into old ruined Rome, after all this firing and booming, to take our leave of the Colosseum. I had seen it by moonlight before, I could never get through a day without going back to it, but its tremendous solitude that night is past all telling. The ghostly pillars in the Forum, the triumphal arches of old emperors, those enormous masses of ruins which were once their palaces, the grass-grown mounds that mark the graves of ruined temples, the stones of the Via Sacra, smooth of the tread of feet in ancient Rome, even these were dimmed in their transcendent melancholy by the dark ghost of its bloody holidays, erect and grim, haunting the old scene, despoiled by pillaging popes and fighting princes, but not laid, 
wringing wild hands of weed and grass and bramble, and lamenting to the night in every gap and broken arch, the shadow of its awful self, immovable. As we lay down on the grass of the Campagna next day, on our way to Florence, hearing the larks sing, we saw that a little wooden cross had been erected on the spot where the poor pilgrim countess was murdered. So we piled some loose stones about it as the beginning of a mound to her memory, and wondered if we should ever rest there again and look back at Rome. End of chapter 10